to Money Mondays, powered by the Joseph Business School, where we bring you up-to-date money news for your personal finances and businesses. I am your host, Jill Thompson. Be sure to tune in for new episodes every first and third Monday of the month. Today on our podcast, we are discussing 2020 taxes for individuals. Filing this year will be different due to some stimulus-related legislation and some usual inflation adjustments. We will discuss tax law changes and how they affect your filing for 2021. Our guest today, Rafael Tolino, is an IRS public affairs officer and has been with the agency for 19 years. The IRS, the Internal Revenue Service, is a bureau of the U.S. Treasury Department and one of the world's most efficient tax administrators. In fiscal year 2019, the IRS collected almost $3.6 trillion in revenue and processed more than 253 million tax returns. Mr. Tolino, welcome to our Money Mondays podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to uh, expound as much as I can about taxes for our time. This is awesome. So we're pretty excited about it. So as we know, of course, filing taxes is an annual thing that everyone has to do in the U.S. And what we wanted to talk to you today about is a lot of things that have transpired within the last year around the pandemic. And so number one question I think that's on everybody's mind is the stimulus. Do we file them or no? Okay, so the first and second round of the economic impact payments, AKA stimulus, as you say, uh, round one came along in the spring from the CARES Act in 2020. And then the end of the year uh, consolidation Appropriations Act right after Christmas, both of those brought economic impact payments. And the general answer is no, they're not taxable and you should not or you do not need to include them in gross income. Okay. So when we're filing this year, are there any new laws or rules that have taken place that we should be aware about as individuals? Uh, Yeah, there's plenty. So I mentioned the CARES Act. There's a lot that came along from that act uh, from March of of 2020. So it's just about a year old. That really addressed a lot of things at the beginning of the pandemic that we saw, a lot of COVID tax relief. So tax relief for individuals and businesses and uh, health and retirement plans, that kind of thing. So you had had, um, relief for employers uh, to employees, for example, if they were caring uh, for a child or a family member with COVID or they had COVID and that kind of thing. So there's all kinds of things based on that. There was also the Families First Coronavirus Response Act that came along. That Consolidation Appropriations Act came along in late December. Uh, another, so there was three major pieces of legislation I'm thinking of off the top. It all brought all kinds of different uh, avenues of tax changes, if you will, for individuals and, and businesses and the such. And um, certainly when you file a return here for 2020, if any of them pertain to you, you're eligible for them, uh, you can take advantage of them as deductions or credits, uh, you should. And uh, how do you find out about them? Well, generally, if you're using a, a CPA or a tax professional tax preparer, uh, or if you're a business, you're using a bookkeeper or a firm, or you're self-preparing, the software will lead you to all the things you're going to want to know. So you can take advantage of them on your tax return. That's good. And so for those who've experienced significant amounts of loss, whether it be job-related uh, their own personal property as far as their homes or even their retirement portfolios taking a dip with the different uh, increases and decreases that have happened with the market. What's available to help them reduce their tax liability? Oh, boy. Uh, so you mentioned job loss. Uh, you know, job loss is unfortunate. We have a nice publication, actually. I remember kind of reading and uh, sending out on social media last year. It's called The Tax Impact of Job Loss. I believe it's publication 4128. And it explains 
how job loss can affect your taxes in general. But we had a lot of folks that moved maybe from a W-2 salary into the gig economy, for example. Perhaps you got a, a job driving uh, food around for one of the uh, major social media uh, outlets for that, uh, or uh, you know other other sorts of avenues of, of gig economy work. So you went in from W-2 to 1099 work. So you had a change in the way your income came in. Uh, other things that uh, people may have done this year, uh, you may have refinanced because mortgage rates have dipped so low. So there's information you're gonna to wanna to know about that in terms of points, deductibility of that on your tax return, that kind of thing. Uh, but man, there's so much out there. It just depends on the situation you're in. If you're in the unfortunate situation about um, income dipping, perhaps you qualify for the earned income tax credit, which you didn't before, which is a, a tax credit given, given to lower to moderate income individuals and families for having earned income. And perhaps your income dipped this year. And if that's the case, perhaps you qualify for that tax credit, which is quite significant in terms of a refund boost it gives to people. So other things that you could think about is unemployment. A lot of people got unemployment. Uh, that is taxable. So if you didn't withhold taxes from that at the federal level, you might see a surprise this year. So going forward, knowing that unemployment is taxable uh, now, perhaps you saw that surprise if you're preparing returns or your tax professional alert you to that, then do some planning going forward here in 2020 uh, to uh, allow, allow for that. So you can avoid that surprise again next year. So now yeah, the whole wide range of stuff there that's affecting us all in some way, shape or form. It just depends on the situation you're in and what kind of taxpayer you are. Yeah. And you know, you brought up something very interesting. I know you talked about that there are a lot of people who are taking on more contracted based work this year and are moving right. from a W-2 employee to more contracted hire. And for those, those individuals who may have already owed the IRS funds from the previous tax year, but maybe fell on some hardship last year, what's available to them? Lots. Uh, in terms of flexibility, the IRS came out actually in November with uh, more flexibility than we've ever provided than we normally do because we know folks are uh, affected by this pandemic in some way, shape, or form. So you're talking about uh, extensions of um, time, if you will, to for installment agreements. So the amount of money uh, you, you can have in, in order to have one of those, offering compromise, that kind of thing, delaying up collections, that kind of thing. Uh, it's a whole wide range of stuff in terms of the expansion of flexibility we have to work with taxpayers based on their specific set of facts and circumstances. So if you're in the position where you're, you owe, uh, you haven't been in a position where you owed before, uh, there's no real reason to panic. The IRS wants to be a help and not a hinder and, and kind of help you through it uh, in order to stay compliant based on, on your situation. So installment agreements are the most common way of doing that in terms of paying taxes over time. But one thing to mention though, is if you are in a position where you have a requirement to file a tax return, and some people don't, but most do, then you have a balance due, then you do wanna file the return and at least pay something if you can't full pay. Because it's much greater of a penalty to not file with a balance due than to file the return and not full pay what you owe. You can always send something in, even if it's a small piece of whatever you owe, and let the agency know, hey, I'm in a, I'm in a situation here where I can't full pay, I need to kind of work this out over time. And we have the flexibility to do that. So consider that as opposed to not filing at all when you have that balance due. Now for refund returns, there really is no penalty or anything like that for refund returns. You're just letting the government keep your money for you, so to speak, until you file that tax return to get your refund back. And a refund basically, um, to take a step back from that, as you, as you may know, is basically you're overwithheld. You had too much money given to the government throughout the year. And when you file your return based on your situation, all the deductions and credits and uh, the, the dependence on your return and 
you and your spouse, your family, that kind of thing, you, you, you get money back because you overwithheld. So tax planning is always a good idea and uh, consider, consider those refunds uh, moving forward, uh, especially considering all the changes we had in 2020. That's good. Raphael, you know what I want to address? Um, and I'm sure a lot of people are thinking about this right now. There are a lot of W-2 employees who have incurred business-like expenses uh, since working from home. And so many of them have had to purchase new equipment, whether it be uh, laptops or printers or scanners or any other type of technological devices. And, and also their utility bills may have increased as well. Is there anything that W-2 employees can do where they can minimize their tax liability as well, knowing that they're not necessarily a business entity, but they do have these business-like expenses? So let me, uh, let me address that real quick. Remind me to go back to the W-2 1099 in terms yeah. of compliance there for a minute. But in terms of your question, generally speaking, the law changed from 2017, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which was a big law that fundamentally changed taxes uh, going forward uh, at that time. So beginning in the tax year 2018, well, that it pretty much eliminated unreimbursed business expenses uh, subject to 2% of adjusted gross income as it was. So therefore, the general answer is if you're an employee working at home, the home office deduction is not available to you anymore per the law. Now, if you're self-employed or an independent contractor, then it's still available to you. And that home office deduction is something you should take uh, if it's regular and exclusive use and a principal place in your home where you do business. And those are the general pieces of information about it. But, uh, you know, taxes, mortgage interests, uh, repairs and maintenance and uh, things like that, insurance in your home qualify based on if you qualify for the home office section in general. But to go back to your question, generally, no, employees do not get the benefit because the law changed. And so it's a little bit different this year. And unfortunately, as the bearer of bad news here, I'd, I'd like to just at least present it as reality because unfortunately, that's, that's what it is. Mm -hmm. uh, real quick, though, because I have a top of mind and I apologize, I wanted to get to it. If you did move from a W-2 to a 1099 kind of employee, and that goes back to the unemployment thing, perhaps you didn't have salary withheld from your paycheck. So if you move into that this year and you're getting money basically as an independent contractor, and you're not having taxes withheld, then you can make quarterly estimated payments going forward because taxes are pay as you go. And you kind of want to make sure you're compliant there as the year progresses. And that way you don't have these surprises that some people find when they actually get to filing a tax return because they owe too much. So keep in mind that that kind of a thing is available to you, quarterly estimated payments, withholding estimators on irs.gov that can help you kind of stay there. Uh, but the bottom line is uh, a lot of that uh, should be addressed for you as a taxpayer uh, just so you don't get too far one way or the other. Big refund, owing a lot, try to stay more down the middle. Uh, that's a better way to go generally. Is there anything available to parents who may have children that are at home with them as well? Uh, maybe, you know, of course, we know that they're not necessarily teachers or anything like that, but is there anything that's available to parents who have students that are at home right now? I believe if they were caring for coronavirus, uh, you know, children, in that case, there, there were credits available based on the employer tax credits and then for employee as well, getting them from the employer, the employer was able to take a credit for that employee, that kind of a thing. Uh, but when it comes to that, the only thing I think of off the top uh, is education expenses. And, and, there, and there are deductions, tax benefits for education. That's an IRS publication 970, uh, it perhaps, um, I don't know, you had, a, you had a Coverdale ESA account or Coverdale ESA and 
maybe you took money out or could take money out to get a computer, but even that, that's nothing taxable if it's a qualified expense for education in that account. So uh, I'm just trying to think off the top, not nothing that I can think of, uh, but uh, if it's available on your tax return based on the software and what your CPA tells you, if there's a different situation, then by all means, uh, per eligibility, you should take advantage of it. You know what, and staying in that vein of thinking about deductions, like has the level of what can be deducted to charitable organizations changed for this year? Uh, there was a change in 2020. So this year in 2021, to kind of separate that, we're talking about planning for now. So going back, we're filing for 2020. So in those laws, CARES Act, for example, and, and the laws that came on, there were some changes for charitable contributions that were different from years before. For example, you can deduct up to $300 in 2020 above the line, so to speak, meaning if you don't itemize your uh, deductions, uh, uh, up to $300 as, as, as donations, cash contributions per the law, which was not available uh, before, because normally if you wanna take a charitable contribution, it goes on an IRS Schedule A, but that was new in 2020. So if you did that, you wanna account for that. The other thing about it is the um, the AGI limit, which is a gross and gross adjusted gross income. It was 50% for years, 60%. It went up to 100% for the law, so you could deduct up to 100% of your income in 2020 as well. These were changes that brought on were brought on by the pandemic and in legislation. So there's those kinds of things. And I believe, if off the top, I'm thinking there was a change for corporations in terms of what they could deduct as well. In fact, a couple of changes there for for them in terms of their ability to give. Uh, uh, give away uh, you know, to qualified charities to, to benefit uh, communities as a whole. But um, you get the idea that we're changing now in 2021. Is there anything different like 20? I believe most of those laws ended in 20. So going forward in 21, you want to check to be sure in terms of charitable contributions and the general rules, which have been the same for a long time. But going back to 2020, yeah, we, we did have some significant changes there in the uh, charitable arena, no question about it. Okay. And you know what, and thinking about the AGI specifically, um, we know that there are probably a lot of couples who have been working from home right now during the pandemic. Is there any benefit at this point to filing jointly opposed to head of household? Is there a distinction? Okay. So, well, there, okay. So there's five filing statuses, if you will, right? So married filing joint and married filing separate are the two for, for, for joint couples or partners and spouses. And then there's head of household, qual, a widower and single. The most common are single and married filing joint. If you're a married taxpayer or considered married in the year uh, from which you're filing the return, i.e. 2020, then you have to either file joint or separate. You have to choose one of those. Now, for the most part, married filing joint is much more beneficial in terms of tax benefits than married filing separate. Marine filing separate tends to be more um, uh, penal, if you will, in terms of the amount of tax benefit it gives you to file that way. But it could benefit you, married filing separate, depending on your situation. So that that's going to depend on the, the couple. Uh, you know, for example, I, I would I would assume, if I'm thinking about this right, if you if you marry somebody and they bring a whole lot of debt into the situation or something like that, then maybe married filing separate is better than married filing joint depending on the situation, it can get complicated when you're talking about debt and, and maybe insolvency and bankruptcy. But generally speaking, you're gonna file a joint return if you're married to get the most benefit. That's the kind of the bottom line. Okay, understood. And so, you know, I just wanna switch a bit to our seniors because I know we've had a couple questions that have come down the pipe regarding how come some people have to pay 
taxes on Social Security while others do not? Social Security is a little bit of an interesting animal. Um, the general rule is if you're a senior citizen and the only income you get is from Social Security, then generally you don't have a taxable event and, and don't need to file a tax return at all. Now that said, there are times when if you have more than just Social Security, perhaps you have pension income, other income coming in, perhaps you have wages that, that come in. Then there's a base amount for your filing status and a little bit of a formula there. And it's like half of your benefits plus uh, other income, if I'm thinking about it right, that in this formula that, that you would have to pay taxes on your Social Security. And Social Security tax, I mean, the taxability of Social Security is up to 85%. I think it's 85% of your the amount you receive is the maximum amount but to bottom line it for you it's a little more uh it's not as simple as your question unfortunately but here's the here's the good part the software does it for you all this stuff so if you're in software and it's asking you questions about uh ssa 1099 income and when you when you got it how much you've got it perhaps you had a spouse that passed away you get these benefits that are different the software is going to help you see through that but to answer your question it's because the law provides and we have to administer it appropriately based on uh, what I just mentioned in terms of how. And um, yeah, so that, that's kind of it. But, but software leads me back to that. It, it makes it so much easier. That's good. And so for those of our audience members who are listening right now, uh, and just thinking about this whole transitioning between W-2 and 1099, sometimes people just don't understand what's considered to be taxable income versus non-taxable. Can you explain the difference between the two? Uh, sure, there's all kinds of income. Income comes in terms of services and, 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 and property and things like that. The IRS has a nice publication on that, 525. It's, it's exactly how you kind of termed it, non-taxable and taxable income. It's at irs.gov and it explains generally what is taxable or not. There's also a code section that generally says that all income is generally taxable unless accepted by law. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about wages and fringe benefits. Perhaps you're talking about bartering. Uh, you're talking about business income, maybe from S corporations and, uh, and things along those lines. Um, when you're talking about disability and things like that, perhaps life insurance proceeds, uh, some of that is taxable, some is not. You know, certain uh, military and government uh, disability pensions uh, and, and benefits uh, are, are not subject to tax. Uh, some are. Uh, welfare, public assistance benefits, you know, so you have all these different sources of income. It's hard to say uh, based on, I mean, I just gave you some general, of course, but uh, the bottom line is for the most part, your wages and income earned and, and in, in, in income provided or earned by you, either unearned or earned is going to be taxable. But that publication is pretty good, publication uh, 525 in terms of explaining exactly uh, what situation you might be. Or if I can go back to software, it'll help you as well. Yeah, go ahead. So, you know, as we're, as we're in this, as we're talking, um, another question that kind of came to mind is I know a lot of people think about student loans. And so most people, I will not say most, but some people have defaulted on loans and have not been paying for uh, a, an amount of time. And so let's just say the IRS is at this point in time collecting their refunds because they have defaulted on student loans. What are some ways in which uh, a person can go about getting back or redeeming themselves in a way that they can get their refunds again? I don't, I don't, so off the top, I don't know. So basically what you're saying is, is if you have a refund and you have this debt, which mm -hmm. is a student loan, that's called an offset. And generally that refund goes to paying the loan if you're not paying it. 
that that is that's true. If you have debt forgiven, uh, for example, that could be a taxable event as well. Uh, but you know, student income in general is deductible even if you don't itemize on a form 1040. And I believe the number is $2,500 or the lesser of the amount paid throughout the year in, order, in, terms, in terms of what you can deduct on a, on a form 1040 for student loan yeah. deduction interest, right? But uh, answering your question, I, I don't know if I have an answer off the top of it to kind of explain exactly you know, how things could work, but it's gonna depend on facts and circumstances and that kind of thing. I know there's other things that are outside of the tax world that benefit student loans, like a, you know, a 10 year window for providing a certain amount of service, having the loan forgiven and all that. But I, I can only just kind of offer what I just did in, in terms of offering some, you know, some information about it. Mm -hmm. Well, you know what, Mr. Tolino, you've given us like a, a, a slew of information, I would say, right now for us to digest. But is there anything uh, specifically that we may have not addressed as a question um, that people should really just be aware of that may affect, affect their taxes this year? Uh, I would say this year and every year is under no circumstance uh, does the IRS email you out of the blue, uh, call you randomly, yeah. uh, send you a text alerting you to a refund or a probe or a survey or an economic impact payment that you should qualify for and click on a link and or answer this call or we're not threatening arrest we're not threatening a lawsuit we're not doing any of those things that scammers do to, to use using the irs as a lure so just be wary if any legitimate agency or company calls you demanding certain things like immediate tax payment for example for irs we don't do that uh just be wary of those scams it's just uh, it's a good idea. There's so many schemes and variations and such that you just want to keep keep your antenna up for things like that. And then one final thing, if you're choosing a tax preparer this year uh, to do it, uh, choose wisely. Uh, find somebody, somebody who's doing a reputable and honest return, who's looking out in your best interest. And that way, you know that you're filing a return accurately. And then if there's information on it uh, that the IRS can ask you about, and we generally do send some letters if, if need be. But you know you're going to reputable pair if you can ask him or her about it. Try to avoid a ghost repair or that kind of a thing. Because the bottom line is, and a ghost repair is somebody who maybe will provide the return to you for a fee. It's bogus. They underinflate or overinflate something. Yeah. You're left holding the bag. Uh, have to pay the refund back and interest and deal with the IRS, and they're gone. That's kind of what I mean by a ghost repair. Uh, but uh, you know, because once you sign it, you're the you're responsible for the information that's on it. So always a good idea right around now, especially as we right in the middle of or the beginning of a tax filing season uh, to make sure folks know, choose wisely out there if you're choosing a tax pro because it's an intimate relationship and you wanna get it right the first time. Yeah, and so speaking of what you just said is once you sign it, you're responsible for it. How long typically should we keep copies of our tax return? Uh, you know, generally three years is not a bad idea with all the schedules and such. Uh, it could be maybe six or seven years if you have a, if you have a, a business or a capital asset even more. Uh, it depends on the situation you're in. Never a bad idea just to keep the 1040 itself, maybe even longer than that, just a copy of the 1040. You may need these things for mortgage refinancing or other sorts of uh, financial instruments and needs along the way. But generally three years is the answer. And if you have a capital asset, uh, as, I, as I say, if it's a, a rental home, maybe even longer, as long as you own that, that capital asset, that kind of a thing. So, uh, but, but good record keeping is always a good idea. Uh, as you get to preparing your return, you want to gather and be organized. That way you don't miss out on anything that could reduce the tax you pay or increase your refund or omit a source of income, that kind of a thing. So 
just record keeping in general is always a good idea and perhaps consider the steps you would take in order to do that uh, uh, to get things right and accurate the first time. So you avoid delays or, hey, Jill, nobody wants correspondence to the IRS more than once, right? So that's true. Get, <laughs> so, but if you do get it, it's usually a letter in the mail, right? And uh, it's a good idea to respond and it tells you exactly what, what we're looking for, the IRS is looking for, if there's a, a question about your return. Okay, that's good. And another question, just thinking about keeping the returns, if for some reason someone did not do proper record keeping and for the last three years they have not kept copies of their returns, are there any way that they can contact the IRS to get a copy? IRS.gov. Uh, for transcripts and that kind of thing. That's your first spot really for everything. IRS.gov, you can get transcripts by mail as well. Uh, you can request a, a copy of your 1040. I believe there's a fee for that. But do keep in mind that IRS.gov is the best spot to go for pretty much everything around now because the pandemic and you know just years long uh, resource challenges has really put us a little bit behind in terms of uh, answering the phones and that kind of a thing. So try to go to IRS.gov and take care of business there uh, as opposed to calling, you can call, no problem, or just staff is a little limited and perhaps your phone wait will be a little longer than you, you want to be. But um, yeah, IRS.gov for transcripts or anything else you need, it's best spot to start. Raphael, who should file their taxes? So the requirement to file a tax return is generally about income threshold. So income, uh, age, and filing status. So generally speaking, if you don't meet a certain threshold of income to file a tax return, you don't necessarily have to file a tax return. I suppose the better question, however, and that, and that general answer is, let me go back to that real quick. It's the standard deduction number is what it is. So the standard deduction for 2020 is 12,400 and is double that for married filing joint. So if your income doesn't rise to that level, you don't necessarily have to file a tax return. Now that said, by law, now that said, the better question I suppose is who should file a tax return? And even if you have some income, uh, depending on your situation, you're lower to moderate income individual, family, whatever, there are a whole bunch of things you can qualify for to really significantly boost uh, a tax refund that can come your way. So who should file? Perhaps an employee or somebody who had a part-time job and had federal tax withheld. Uh, somebody had, in that situation or a family who had just minimal income but qualifies for the earned income tax credit or the additional child tax credit or any of the other credits that are available for lower to moderate income individuals and families. So really it's, it, it's who should file or who should consider filing. It's true you don't necessarily have to file if your income is below a certain level. As I mentioned for social security recipients, if that's the only income you receive then generally you have no requirement and you don't have to file a return. But on the other end of the scale, a lot of folks should file and that way they could take advantage of the tax benefits that are written in law that would benefit them. And so how do strangers pretty much react when they find out that you work for the IRS? Uh, yeah, sometimes good and sometimes bad. I've been in positions where uh, at a party or something, I remember I was at a party once years ago, I think it was a Christmas party, and uh, a friend said, hey, this is uh, Raphael, he works for the IRS, to some stranger, and I thought, uh oh, and the way this person uh, was dressed and the way he looked and his first reaction, uh, I thought, uh oh, I'm about to get a mouthful, but he, he said, he looked at me, took a deep breath, and he said, you know, Raphael, I have to tell you something about the IRS. And I thought, oh boy. He said, they, I worked with them once and they were the nicest, the kindest. They helped me all the way through. So Aww. it was a real complimentary kind of thing. On the other hand, yeah. I was at a golf course once and uh, playing golf uh, late in the afternoon one day just to get nine holes in. 
uh, near where I live. And I walked out to the tee and uh, joined a, an older couple, a senior citizen couple, and uh, went off the tee just for a couple hours. And by the time we got to the third hole, uh, the, the lady asked, so Raphael, what do you do? And I, I explained to him and she looked me in the eye, this small little uh, cute lady, uh, nice golf swing, the whole thing. She looked and I thought she was gonna, I thought fire was gonna come out of her mouth. Anyway, she looked at me, she looked at her husband and she said, you work for the IRS? I said, yes, ma'am. She turned to her husband who was sitting in the car right there. I'll never forget it. She said, hey, uh, I forgot his name, uh, John or whatever. Hey, whatever you do, do not tell him anything about us. No social security number. Do not tell him our last name, nothing. You understand? And he's like, uh, well, okay. And I, I, I thought she was kind of kidding, but she wasn't. And uh, yeah, for the rest of the, I actually, after the athletes, the sixth or seventh hole, I kind of just cut out. I was very uncomfortable. This poor lady had a very strong bias. So I guess you never know what you're going to get uh, when people uh, hear you. Other things, there are reactions when you go into newsrooms or radio stations and things and uh, certain, certain jokes that are made and that kind of thing. But try to make it as light as you can, because for a lot of folks, taxes are a serious matter and that's understood. So uh, discussing them coming from the IRS, you try to lighten it up a little bit and provide the fact that, hey, we're not a faceless bureaucracy. We're here to help as much as we can and provide the resources so we can we can do that. Uh, so yeah, I guess that's kind of a quick overview. Hey, if you were me, I think you were a friend. I mean, hey, having a friend who works for the IRS is like having a good ally who can help me with some great tips of how I can reduce my tax liability. I see it as a benefit. Amen. <laughs> Thanks for saying that. <laughs> so yeah, it's true. That's true. We're here to help if we can. And you know what? This is our last and final question, but it's a two-parter. Is okay. there any way or any tip that you can su suggest to our audience members as they're beginning to prepare for their taxes? I know that oftentimes we kind of wait to January or we wait to December 31st to begin to start piling every, compiling all the information together. But are there any tips as to what we can do prior to this time to make sure that we're ready at the top of the tax season and not kind of scrambling around to try to find information? And the second part to that is, is has the, fi the final filing date changed at all as far as April 15th or is it the same this year? April 15th is a deadline in 2021 that hasn't changed. And I guess to answer your question, I always think of maybe doing some organization uh, throughout the year as best you can. And that way you avoid any overwhelming uh, processes, if you will, in terms of year end, because there are uh, folks out there who have lots of paperwork. If you, uh, if you own a business or you run a business or uh, you're, you're self-employed and, and you have all these papers and deductions and, and receipts and things like that, Whatever you can do to electronically do that, there's lots of software for that as well. But I always think some organizing as you go is a good idea so you don't overwhelm yourself. And it's the same kind of uh, logic, I suppose, in doing a tax return, perhaps gather it together, take some time to do that, come back to it later, uh, realize, okay, I got it in this space, I got it in that spot, I got it here, I'm ready to get to the computer and do it, or I'm ready to give it to my CPA in a nice organized format so they can file that return for you and not charge you. Uh, extra money to organize what you could have done yourself, that kind of a thing. So I guess the bottom line is good organization uh, is, is never a bad idea uh, as you as you move along with, with finances. Uh, you know, I, I think so, at least. And I hate to bring my opinion into things, but uh, it definitely it definitely I, I think it helps. Mr. Tolino, thank you so much for coming on our podcast. Are there any other resources where if people have additional tax questions that they may have for the IRS where they can go for information or resources? 
IRS.gov. I mean, that's 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 number one, and it's the IRS.gov, not.com. So IRS.gov for everything you need. Uh, you think of taxes, filing, free, this, that, and the other forms, publications, downloads, task-based tools. So many of those. IRS.gov. Thank you so much for coming on our podcast today. Anytime. Glad to be here. On our next episode, we'll be discussing business taxes. If you have any questions for our expert, be sure to submit them in advance to moneymondays at jbs.edu. Don't forget to subscribe and hit the notification bell on our JBS YouTube channels and social media outlets. I'm your host, Jill Thompson, and I look forward to seeing you prosper.